Good, let's pray as we come to God's word this morning. Lord Jesus, we just uh, thank you that we can gather around your word, Lord. Our, our heart and our desire today, Lord Jesus, is that you would be glorified, that God would be glorified yeah, in our hearts, in our lives, Lord, in this church, in this community, all over the face of the earth, Lord, would you be glorified. And Lord, we know that the, the only power by which you can be glorified is by the working of your Holy Spirit. And it is he who unfolds the pages of scripture to us and applies them and opens our eyes to see and opens our ears to hear. And Lord, we ask that you would do that this morning, that, that your spirit would use the word of God to draw us closer to you, to glorify your name, Jesus. It's, it's our desire that you would be lifted up. And as you are lifted up, I pray that you would draw all men to yourself. And so Jesus, we present to you our hearts today. We present to you our minds, our will. We ask God that they would be transformed by the power of your word and by the work of your spirit and that you would add unction and power, Lord, to those things that are taught and shared this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're in 2 Peter chapter 1. This morning, we, we, we dove into this book last week. I want to just go right from the top here again. And so if you're here last week, you hear a few things over as we move through this chapter, but I think there's really good, important stuff here, and, and I, I just wanted to hit it again. And so uh, let's start in verse 1, and it says this. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if I even said that right off. Did I say Simon Peter? Because it says Simeon Peter. Simeon Peter. And Peter is not, you know, as we mentioned last week, not often referred to in the scripture as Simeon. He was called Simon, but that's the Greek variation of his name. Simeon is the Semitic Hebrew way to properly say uh, his name. And as you get into this book, you can just sense that Peter is in this, in this contemplative way thinking about his roots. He is... Uh, in that place where he is at the point in his life where the finish line is not far off. Um, and so he's taking some time to think back and to remember that place where he had come from. He started out as Simeon, but he became Peter. And you know what happened to that big fisherman? Uh, the man who was once Simeon discovered his identity in Christ Jesus and he became Peter. He, he came to know Jesus and his life was changed to that of one that was blown and tossed and like shifting sands and like a wind that you didn't know where it was coming or going. And he was tossed and whatever you might say about Peter and he became that man who was known as Kepha, the rock, Peter. And Jesus will do that for you as well. You know, we live in this world where people are struggling with an identity crisis. Our entire culture is just living in this place of being in, a, in an identity crisis. And Peter, as he came to know Jesus, discovered his identity. Now, you just think about our world and where we live, you know, you, you, would, you would think that age and maturity would be the cure-all for figuring out your identity, but it's clear that it's not. So, some people have bigger identity crisis as they, as they get older, and they, they spend their entire lives in that. And it's only when we begin to discover and see whether we're young or old, we realize who the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is, is that 
is when we begin to discover who we are and the identity that we have been given. It's only when we begin to realize, any person begins to realize that we have uh, been created and made in the image of God and that God does not exist for our purposes, but that we exist for his glory and for his name, that we begin to find uh, some sense of meaning in this life. In everything, in everything we do, the purpose is to please the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why in his introduction of this letter, Peter identifies himself as Simeon Peter, but before he goes on to talk about even say, I'm the apostle, he first identifies himself as a servant, a bond slave, uh, one who has served his master and that, and then was set free. That's what a bond slave was. It was someone who had served as a servant, done their time, and the master had set them free. And a bond slave was one who had gone back to the master and said, look, I know you've set me free, but I also know that you love me. I also know that you care for me. I also know that I and my family are well taken care of in your house. And so I want to willingly offer my life to you as a servant. I like your house. <laughs> I don't want to go. I had a roof over my head. I was well fed and I worked hard but I know I was taken care of and I know I was genuinely loved. Now, should that, that servant that was set free come to such a realization, he could go to that master and say, I want to offer myself to you as a slave, as a servant. And he'd permanently become a part of that home by the choice of his will. Now here's Peter. He's at the end of his life. He's contemplating where he has come from and where he is. He's considering his identity and he in introduces himself. I'm a bond slave. I am a servant. I was a free man. Jesus Christ set me free. But I offered myself and my life to him as a vassal, as a bondsman, a bondsman of Jesus Christ. So you're going to serve somebody or you're going to serve something. And Jesus Christ came to set us free. He came to set us free to choose. And as those who follow Christ, we have freedom to choose what we are going to serve. Are we going to serve the poison of sin, which will kill you? God is hoping that you will choose to serve him. As he expresses his love for you in Jesus Christ, uh, you know, that you'll, that you'll offer your lives to him as a bond slave, as a servant. I mean, why not serve a loving master over one who will work you to death? And so Peter chose Christ. He settled his identity. And I just think, man, that's a life worth having, to have your identity settled, to have that sense of rest, knowing who you are, knowing I was Simeon and Jesus ironed that stuff out. We got those wrinkles worked out. And now I'm Peter and I feel so secure. Simeon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle simply means sent one. In a unique sense, we know that the 12 were apostles designated and chosen by Jesus Christ. But in a broader sense and use of that word, apostle just means a missionary, one who is on mission with Christ. And, and for that matter, all of us can be that. He says in verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So a little, here's a little math lesson from the kingdom. Grace and peace are to be multiplied, not added, but multiplied. I, I kept thinking, it, it's like, 
A shower of rain starts with one single drop. Blunk. And then it just multiplies and it's poured out. Or the stream becomes a river. And when that rain comes, it just has the ability to, to break the banks and, and flood the valley. And that's what God's grace and his peace is to be to you. Now, in these, these next two verses that we're going to look at, I, I, I mentioned this last week, but they are among some of my favorite verses in the New Testament. I just love these verses because they're about the abundant resources that every Christian has been given. And, and the preceding verses that we're going to look at this morning are about how to handle the resources that you've been given. So a resource management lesson. We're going to get this lesson on how to handle the resources of the kingdom. And so, I, I said this last week, but I want to say it again because I think it works. It helps you understand what's going on here. Imagine this. Jimmy Patterson calls you. He calls you and he brings you to his home and he shows you all of his personal treasures. He gives you a tour of his empire. He breaks it all down. You know, you get to eat dinner on the yacht, the Nova Spirit. He hands you the keys to the yacht and he says, go out and take it a rip for a rip, you know. He puts his signet ring on your finger and he gives you all of the ability to manage the resources of the Patterson Empire. How cool would that be, right? Billions of dollars. It would be awesome. But the thing is, is it would be a steep learning curve. Trying to figure out how to handle all the ins and outs and the things that you've been given. You know, I would need to be taught tutored, mentored in the handling of such immense resources. Well, Christians have been placed in that very spot by the Lord. So we're going to take a little tour of what's available, and then we're going to just open it up and see what the puppy will do, okay? Take it out on the highway and see what it'll do. So check it out, verse 3. It says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us, to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. Uh, first thing in those verses is this, to take note of, it's all yours. It is all yours. It's already happened. You settled your accounts with the Lord. You surrendered to the love of God in Christ Jesus, and you got handed the keys to the kingdom. So you have an open door from the Lord. And so if it's an open door, then what we need to know is how, what's available and how do I put it to work? So what is available? Well, Peter says this, available to you are all things that pertain to life and godliness. Wait a minute. All things? Aren't there hidden secrets to unlocking, you know, the power of the Christian life? No, there isn't. Wait, isn't there like a secret ingredient in the sauce that I don't get to know about? No, there isn't. There's no secret ingredients in the sauce. Well, isn't there like a combination lock and I have to get? No, there's no combination. It's an open door from the Lord. No hidden secrets, no mysterious ingredients, no secret sauce, no combination locks. So if all of it's open, everything I need is there, then how do I get tutored and taught and mentored 
in handling the immense resources of the kingdom of God. How did Peter figure it out? And the answer is this. Peter found knowledge and access to heaven's resources in fellowship with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the servant has to know his master. I have to know his words. I have to invest my life in getting to know Jesus. I got to bend my will to serve him, be a student of his word, a person of prayer. I must bend the posture of my life so that in everything I make it my aim to please my Lord and master. And so the key ingredient to accessing riches is this. You have to know the king. Like the whole Patterson thing. It's a little bit of a problem because I don't know Jimmy. Right? That's the problem. I don't know Jimmy and Jimmy don't know me. But I'm known by the Lord Jesus. And you and I are growing in our knowledge of the Lord. And as we grow in our knowledge of Christ, I gain greater and greater understanding into the riches of the kingdom. And so... You know, how well do you know your Savior? Your sense of identity and fulfillment, your sense of, or your ability to experience the abundant life that Christ offers us is directly connected to your knowledge of the Savior. To how well you know him. Not head knowledge, but how you know him. Like you know your spouse. How well do you know the Savior? In fact, Peter actually tells us that God has given us very great and precious promises and they're the means by which we participate in the divine nature and we escape the corruption of this world. And we become a partaker. That means we get to partner with God. We get to participate in the divine. He shares with you and I all of his resources and that happens and I access his riches through the promises of God. We spent a lot of time talking about that last week. I'm not going to hunker down there. But I will say this. What are the promises of God that make accessible all of the resources of God? Well, you know, in our, in our day, the word promise is a word that we throw around lightly. We use it all the time. We promise to do all sorts of things. A promise, you know... In our day and age, though, it doesn't necessarily guarantee any follow-through. You know, it's just like, well, I meant to. I, I had good intention. But that's not how the Bible defines a promise. A promise is a declaration or an assurance that one will do a particular thing and that thing will happen. It will happen. By its true definition, a, a promise is a guarantee of a follow-through. And God has bound himself to certain uh, promises in his word that guarantee he will do certain things. But here's the thing about his promises. His promises always invite our participation. God invites me to participate because he's desiring relationship and dependence and that I would get to know him. And as I partake in the promises, I get to partake in the divine nature and escape the corruption of sin. And this call to godliness that Peter's about to share with us, it's, it's secured in the goodness of God. We, we, we sing that, your great name. You know, your, but we sing about the Lord's glory, about his, his amazing grace. 
It's his grace that supplies everything that we need and we access it through the promises of God. And so he says this in verses 5 to 7. He's going to talk about the life of virtue. He says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. And so here's that, here's, I mean, it's not comprehensive, but there's this discussion from Peter on a list of moral virtues that we can have in our lives. But the thing about this, these virtues, it's that they are rooted in us being dependent upon uh, the grace of God. I'm not going to dive in and explain all of these, these virtues, this chain of virtues that Peter lays out for us. But I want to encourage you and point out to you the diligence with which we are called uh, to do these things, to develop these things. What does Peter say? Verse 5. Make every effort. Put your back into your Christianity. You want to hit a home run? You practice good form. Be intentional. Be bold. Uh, Practice good form. Look at the list of virtues again. Let's just check it out real quick. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Now, here's my question. How do I do that? How do I go about and, and do those things? In fact, I look around this community and this world and people I know, and I would say there's lots of good people out there who have a lot of these virtues. Is that all God wants? Is that it? Just be good, perform these virtues, be, be decent, and, uh, you know, God's happy? Is that just his aim, that we would be moral people? Well, you need to know that God's desire is not that you would strive in your flesh to produce these things. What Peter is telling us is that, that, that God has all of the resources in his bank to produce these virtues and we bring them out by partaking, participating with him, partnering with him. And the way that we partake is through the precious and great promises of God. Take possession of the promises by faith and God brings about these virtues in our lives. He says in verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus. I love that because I want to be effective. I want to be fruitful for Jesus. And there it is, the math for the kingdom right there. I partake with God through the promises of God. Put my back into it. And he brings forth virtue and develops character in our lives. Peter says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. Having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. To me, that's a really interesting verse. Because it tells us that you will lose something. You will lose a sense of something in your Christianity if these things are not increasing and growing. What is it? You'll lose your sense of assurance. 
it will begin to go as virtue is not produced. You question the Lord, you question the reality of salvation, you question all these things. But Peter says, if, if, you, if you have these qualities, man, rather than those who lack them, who are getting blind and their vision's going, they've become more nearsighted. Those who uh, lean on the grace of God and have virtue supplied in their life, vision begins to grow. It's like the Lord adds lenses to your life and you're like, Wow. Look at the kingdom. Look at the resources. This great sense of personal assurance in the Lord comes from having these qualities. And so he says in verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, verse 12. He says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these things. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of a reminder. So here we are, you know, in this first part of the text, Peter's, you know, expressed things about the blessing of God, grace and peace to you. He shared about the abundant riches that we have in Christ. He shared how we access those riches through the promises of God. He's called us to participate with, the, with God and escape the corruption of this world. He's, he's told us about the possibility we can, we can enter the kingdom in, a, in this fruitful way with the Lord Jesus. And then he says, I intend to always remind you of these things. Now, you know, I read this and I think, man, I know you know this stuff. You know this stuff. But I will not be negligent to not keep on reminding you until you are established. That's what Peter says. I, I would be negligent to not keep reminding you until you are established in these truths. You know, the memory is a funny thing. My, my mind's affected by sin, you know, like all of ours. I, I forget things I should remember. <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to pull examples out of my life, but I forget a lot of things I should remember. And then, you know, my mind remembers a lot of things I wish I could forget. <laughs> Aren't you like that? You know, just, man, sin plays this. So it just <laughs> comes back. I wish I could forget that, man. We left that out of the cross a while ago, didn't we? Can't I just forget that? Go away. But the memory is, it, it forgets the things we should remember and it remembers the things we should forget. You know, that's why in discipleship, one of the most important rules is repetition. You know, repeat, repeat, repeat. Athletes are a great example. You know, an athlete, when developing muscle memory, works to have like 10 to 15,000 repetitions to train a muscle, just to remember, to develop the memory. And that's why in the Christian life, the name of the game should be, you know, not how much you know. Look, man, it's not about that. We got a culture in the church that, that just wants knowledge and lots of it. But it's not about how much you know. It's about how well you know it. That's what Peter's saying here. You know, I find something incredible as I do discipleship stuff and Bible studies and sometimes... Um, and some of the stuff that I've done, I'll, like, you'll get, I'll get a challenge from someone. They'll say, man, this is baby stuff. And, I, and I, 
I've just, I'm just discovering in the Lord that the depth is actually in the simplicity. Do you ever find that? That it's like, wow, the simple truths are actually the richest truths if you explore them, if you sink your teeth into them. You know, in discipleship, the goal is to help others, you know, not go a mile wide and only be an inch deep, but to go deep, to put your roots down and to be established in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, think about how much repetition is involved in being a parent. It's kind of annoying, isn't it, parents? How many times did I tell you, lift the seat, okay? Lift the seat when you're going pee or whatever it is. You know, the bathroom floor is not your laundry basket. That's, that's the one I have to say to my daughter because she turns my bathroom floor into the laundry basket. Or, you know, put your dishes in the dishwasher. Clean up your mess. How many times do I have to tell you? Finish this up. Okay, fine. I'm putting on the timer. Okay, there's, there's much repetition involved in parenting. And it seems annoying, but it's necessary, isn't it? Because you're, you are developing uh, the memory and you're developing skill. And repetition, you know, might seem annoying in developing of the muscle memory when you're an athlete, but it's something that's got to be done. And so your job, parent, dad, mom, is to say the same things over and over and over again. It's actually your job. And it's my job as a pastor to say the same, same things over and over and over again. We, we don't move beyond certain things. Never. I keep saying them until the Lord establishes you in those truths. And so Peter says in verse 14, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as the Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you will be able to recall these things. Now, Peter knew from the Lord that he was not always going to be around. The time of his departure was approaching. He would soon be going to the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus. And, you know, I was just thinking about it. That is actually one of the reasons why as parents we work to train our kids. Because one day we won't be around. And you can't leave your dishes all over the house. <laughs> you can't, you know... Do what, you know, the other day, I, two weeks ago, I got to, is Jonah in the room here? I got to teach Jonah how to cut the lawn for the first time. Amen. That's right, brother. That's right. So I've been working to clear our backyard. So each week when I cut the lawn, I like do a little patch more because it's all blackberries. And, and so I started in the backyard and this week he came running and he says, so, so am I cutting the lawn? all like a tough guy. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. You got the lawn, man. So I did my little part and then I set him up in the front yard. Why? Because there's a day coming when I won't be there and he'll have to cut his own grass. He'll have to know how to do it. He'll have to know how to start a motor. In fact, uh, my little Jonah turns, he turns 12 tomorrow. And so this week I sat him down and I said, you're going to be 12. You see mom and dad having a quiet time here. So enough of me reading you Bible stories, buddy. You're 12 years old. Go get your Bible and sit down. You start in the book of John. One chapter. Let's go. Every day. I'm here. You're there. And you know what? I gave him a little bit. Uh, I, I'll give room. You know, I've asked some different parents in, in our church about how they've done this or how they've done that. But I said, sit here and read it. 
And you know, as he gets going and he begins to establish, I'll show him some more things about skill and the handling of God's word. And so Peter says, I'll remind you, man. I'll say it over and over and over again, but I'm going to do it even though I know you know these things because there'll be a day when I'm not here and you need to be established. You know, when you think about the memory, the intensity of, of your mind's ability to remember is totally dependent on the depth of the impression. That's why in Christian things, you need to go deep because as the depth of the impression, go, as the roots go down, the intensity of the memory's ability uh, to, to remember increases. And so, you know, there's times in your life when you, when you need to revive your memory. It, it needs to be deepened. Because your memory, in this sense, as you were reading from the scripture, affects your vision. You will lose sense of vision as you forget the things of God. And so you need to develop the memory. You need to have impressions with the Lord. You know, I think of Moses who went up onto the mountain of the Lord or into the presence of God in the tabernacle. And when he would come out, what would happen? He'd have to cover his face because the glory of God was fading. He didn't want anyone to see it. See, that is the nature of glory. And that is even the nature of vision on this earth. On this side of eternity, it fades when you leave the presence of the Lord. And it needs to be refreshed with face-to-face encounters with God, with FaceTime in the Word, with time and prayer. So where are you at? Is your vision of heaven growing dim? Is the glory of God fading from your life? Has your memory numbed in regards to the things of God? Do you remember your early days with the Lord? You refresh the vision and you sharpen your memory when you seek God. Remember when you were seeking God? That's when it was, the impression was there. And so you seek the Lord. You know, Peter knew that his death would be soon. That word departure is actually the word exodus. It's the same word. Just like the children of Israel who departed from Egypt for the promised land, they made an exodus In the same way, Peter says, I have an exodus planned, man. I'm going to the promised land. And he says in verse 16, For we did not follow the cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am very, who I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. You know, I, I, I read that and the first thing I think is, aren't you glad we don't follow cleverly devised myths? This is not a folk tale or an ancient story. No, Peter says, I was an actual eyewitness of Jesus Christ in these things. And he's talking about the transfiguration. See, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John up Mount Hermon. And up there, he, on top of that mountain, Jesus underwent a metamorphosis before their eyes. His deity began to shine through his humanity. And in that moment of transfiguration, even his clothes, the scripture says, began to shine like lightning. Jesus so, so filled with the presence of God that even the outer vestment of his life was changed. 
And so to me, the, 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 the transfiguration of Jesus is a powerful example, even of what Peter is talking about earlier in this passage. See, what God is not looking for is, God, look at God does not want outside conformity. He wants inner transformation. God's desire is not the facade of religion or surface compliance or outward obedience, but inner transformation. We're not working to rearrange the furniture here, but seeking to allow God to work an inner metamorphosis. You know, consider the virtues from earlier in this text. Peter's message was not about outside conformity. It was about the riches of God available to you through the promises of God by God's grace to change you on the inside so that you'll change on the outside. Just like Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. It wasn't something that happened on the outside. It was his deity shining forth his humanity. You know, Jesus went up on that mountain. Well, think about actually how he was transfigured. Firstly, what happened? He had to go up the mountain. He went up the mountain and that picture throughout scripture is always about going to meet with God. You know, you go to the Old Testament. They, they went up to meet with the Lord. Moses went up Mount Sinai and there he spoke with God. And so Jesus went up the mountain and the gospels tell us that there he knelt and prayed while Peter and James and John caught up on their Z's. They, they slapped. And while Jesus prayed, what happened? There was a metamorphosis. There was a change of his, uh, of his nature. You know, so often in our minds, we limit the concept of prayer. You know, sometimes I, 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 so, I limit prayer to thinking prayers about asking God for things and I'm asking him to supply all the time. Oh God, would you take care of this? Oh God, would you help, with, help us with this? Would you meet this need? But, you know, that's a limited definition of prayer. To just always think of it about, as about supplication. See, the, the greatest thing about prayer is, or the greatest ministry of prayer is, is not actually about us to God, but about God to us. And more than anything, prayer is not about pleading with God. But prayer is about receiving from God. See, God is good. God, in his nature, wants to bless. Did you know that? God wants to bless you. God is willing God, God is not holding out on you. Do you know the scripture tells us that his eyes roam to and fro the earth? 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. Uh, his heart searching for those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And so the posture of our prayer, because God is looking for a posture in prayer, the posture of our prayer should not be seeking to convince God of our way, but just to receive when we come into his presence. To receive from him is will, who is willing to bless. See, prayer is communion with our maker where we just open the channels for God to pour out his blessing. That's why when I think of prayer, I just think, you know, there's no, there, there's no higher prayer than just saying, God, your will be done, man. I don't know what's going on here. I, I need you. Help me. Your will be done in the midst of this. I trust you. You are good. And he supplies what we need. And Jesus went up that mountain and he was transfigured. A metamorphosis. And the scripture tells us that Moses and Elijah appeared with him. Disciples woke up for the show finally. (laughs) 
And what did they talk about? Do you remember? The Gospels tell us that they, they discussed Jesus' impending departure, his, his death, his exodus, actually, just like Peter. See, when Jesus came down from that mountain, he set, the, the Gospels clearly tell us that from that point on, he set his sights on Jerusalem, and that's where he was going. That, that was the entire focus of his ministry after the transfiguration. It, he was traveling to Jerusalem where he would be crucified. He moved from glory to the grave. Moses and Elijah and Jesus up there in front of the disciples, and what are they talking? They're talking about death. They're talking about his departure. And you think about that, fr from that place, from that place on top of that mountain right there, Jesus could have ascended straight into heaven. It's, it's almost like, you know, his ascension story. He's up there. He is glorified. The disciples are seen. Moses and Elijah are there. The voice from heaven speaks. This is my son. With him I am well pleased. And the miracle of the transfiguration was what happened next. Because Jesus could have ascended into heaven. But he descended back down the mountain. He descended back down the mountain into a broken and rebellious and sinful world and he bore our sin. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows, smitten by God and afflicted and wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was placed the punishment that brought us peace and by his stripes were healed. And we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, the miracle wasn't on top of the mountain. That was just the real Jesus. They got to see him. The miracle happened that he left that glory and he descended into the mess of this world to deal with the filth of our sin. And you know, we live in the midst of this world and the story of the transfiguration is a great example for us because we need to learn to journey up the mountain. Go up the mountain to meet the Lord. Climb it. Spend time and meet the Lord in prayer. Be transformed and journey back down the mountain and enter this life and live the empowered life for Christ in the midst of this fallen and broken world. Uh, we don't get to ascend yet. That day's coming. Rapture's coming. There will be an ascension for us. But for now, we need to keep going up the mountain, meet with the Lord, back down, live the Christ-empowered life. And it needs to happen on a regular life, a regular basis. And, and God won't hold out on you. He is good and his love endures forever. And so Peter says, man, we, we don't fall cleverly devised myths. We're eyewitnesses of this stuff. Uh, we ourselves heard the majestic voice from heaven with our own ears. But Peter says something amazing. Check this out next, 19. He says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a light, a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. He says this, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. You know, if you were given a choice, let me give you a choice here. Just think about it for a second. You can do one of two things. You can go up the Mount of Transfiguration. Okay. We'll just time machine back. Take you there with Peter. 
you can go up the Mount of Transfiguration and see what happened up there. See the glory of Jesus Christ. Be an eyewitness of all that. Hear the voice of God. This is my son, to whom I'm well pleased. Or you can have this. Okay, you get one choice. You get this or you get to go up the mountain. What would you choose? You know, probably lots of times I would say I would, I would want to choose the experience. But Peter actually tells us that he would choose the word. That he says, you have something more sure. You have something more sure than seeing the transfiguration with your own eyes. You have the prophetic word of God. You have his word. Why is it more sure? Because experiences, they, they fade, man. They, they fade. But the word of God lives forever. If, if experiences left a lasting impression, then, you know, the children of the Exodus, the Israelites, as they left Egypt and into the, headed towards the promised land, if it was about experiences, well, then they had them all, didn't they? I mean, seas parting and people healed of leprosy and, you know, staffs turning into snakes and all these different, if it was about experiences, man, they, they had it. But they were left craving for more and they complained against the Lord. See, the impression of experiences fade and only, the, and only the word of God dwells forever. You know, if you get the choice between an experience or a Bible study, pick the Bible study, man. Get your roots down. Get established in the things of God. In fact, Peter says the word, the word is like a lamp shining in a dark place. The psalmist said, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You know, this world can be dark, eh? It's, it's a dark place and it seems like it's getting darker. Therefore, the more we need the light of the word. Verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter says, this is important. First of all, you got to square this away. Does that remind you of all these things? Make sure you understand this, that no prophecy comes from someone's own interpretation. And so with that said, you know, for $29.99 this morning, you know, I will sell you your very own special glasses from the angel Moroni. And, uh, he will give you a personal interpretation of the Bible that no one else has. Or for just $59.99, I'll give you a set of golden plates as well. No, you know, no individual has the exclusive rights to Bible interpretation. You know, any, any, any group or religion that solely claims that their organization alone has it, um, their inability to interpret Scripture is very clear. Just look at what Peter says. It's not owned by an individual or, or, you know, some organization. To me, it's awesome. Read the Bible for yourself. That's what it means. Surround yourself with, you know, solid Bible teachers. You know, it's, a, it's amazing how, and, and so much of my study, I'm reading people from all sorts of different backgrounds. I'm like, wow, man, it's just amazing how the Lord just brings the main thing, the main thing all the time as these people study the word because that's what God's word is. That's what God's word does. You, you get into the scripture. 
Read the Bible for yourself. This week we, uh, I think it was this week, we sat down and we watched that Luther movie. Have you ever seen that movie? That's that's a movie. That's a great movie. It's worth watching. Go see Jason today and rent it. It's a good movie, and uh, it's just so cool when they put the Bible into the hands of the people. Read it for yourself. The Great Reformation, man, it's awesome. Read the Bible for yourself. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Um, I watched something else that was really cool this week. Uh, I'm going to show it here coming up in the fall. Uh, it was a movie with Ray Comfort, Evolution versus God. And at one point in time, he, uh, he's interviewing this professor who was an atheist and an evolutionist. And uh, he asked the man, he says, what, what if you're wrong? And the man says, well, I can concede that. I could be wrong. And then he turned to Ray and he said, but what if you're wrong? And Ray said, I'm not wrong. I'm not wrong. He said, how can you say that? You've got a, you're close-minded. And Ray said, let me ask you this. Does your wife exist? He said, of course she exists. If I suggest that she didn't exist, it wouldn't mean anything to you because you know her. And he said, and I know the Lord. I've known him for 40 years and he's changed my life. You can't tell me he doesn't exist. He exists. I know him. Amen. You know, we need to know our Savior. And the beauty of it is, is he's given us his word and, he, and the scripture interprets scripture. It's just perfectly linked together, you know. In a, in a few months, it, it'll be 20 years since uh, I first just started having a quiet time with the Lord, reading the Bible for myself. And, you know, I just, I've yet to find a mistake, actually. I, the more I read it, the more, I'm like, wow, this is, the more I read it, just the better it gets. It gets better and the more convinced that I am, that it is divinely inspired, just as Peter said. No prophecy ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke as God carried them by the Holy Spirit. What a, what a beautiful thing. You know, think about the identity of Jesus. It's hard to wrap your mind ab- around him because he's, he's human and he's divine. It's like, man, I can't understand that. that. That messes with me. He's God and he's man. But you know, the scripture is similar to the nature of Jesus. It's both divine and it's human. Inspired and breathed by God, but expressed through the writings of human beings, through their personalities, through the way God wired them, as the Spirit carried them along. That word carried is is the word driven. It's talking about a ship with its sails up, being driven uh, by the wind. It's the, same, it's the same word from the book of Acts when, when Peter said, or Paul said, hoist the sails and drive that ship into the sandbank, man, because we're going to die out here on the seas. They, they were driven along. You know, the divine nature of the Bible is so, it's so clear. That's why Peter says it's, man, it is, it is awesome. You know, that, that they say that there are over 330 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his first coming. You know, mathematically, uh, the chance of Jesus fulfilling so many prophecies that were, that were given hundreds of years before his coming, is, is, it's just mathematically ridiculous. It's like totally impossible. 
In fact, they, they say that the chance of Jesus just fulfilling eight, eight prophecies is one in 10 to the 28th power. And he fulfilled 330 prophecies. They say that just fulfilling eight would mean this. This is the chances. That you bury the entire state of Texas with silver dollars. Two feet deep. And you paint one red and you toss it in the pile. And you tell someone, go find the red coin. It can't ha- one person cannot do that. But Jesus did. And not just eight. 330 prophecies of scripture. Boy, I thank God that he's given us his word. What a privilege we have in our nation that we can gather, preach it, proclaim it every day. Read it. Spend time with the Lord. You lean on his grace. You draw on his power. You take hold of his promises and let him bring forth that abundant uh, Christ-empowered life. And he will do so. He's good. He loves you. He wants to bless you. Let's pray. Stand with me.